Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider. The champagne days are over, writes Dan Harris, reflecting on how the tone of his China Law blog has evolved since its founding in 2006. As the founder of Harris Bricken, an international law firm with a major China presence, Dan has a unique window into how macro changes in China's economy and trade relations play out at the firm level. In this conversation, we'll also be discussing common misconceptions about law in China and his favorite Chinese legal scams. Dan, welcome to China Econ Talk. Glad to be here. So first off, how'd you get into this business? It's a long story and I'll try to make it short. I was sitting in Pusan, Korea, waiting for a ship to come in that I was supposed to arrest on behalf of a Singapore company. It was a Russian ship and it didn't come to Pusan. And we learned it was going to be going instead to Dalian. So rather than go home without the arrest, I contacted an old friend of mine in Seattle, Steve Dickinson, who used to head up the China practice at a big firm here in Seattle. He connected me to a lawyer in Dalian. I went to Dalian. The ship ended up going to Qingdao. That lawyer in Dalian connected me to a lawyer in Qingdao. We arrested the ship in Qingdao <laughs> after my being there for about a week and deciding, hey, there's a lot going on in this country. Came back to Seattle, convinced Steve to quit his job as a professor of law at the University of Washington and join us in the China gold rush. And what year was this? I think it was about 1999, maybe 2000. So, so we've been at this a long time for sure. So in this process of working in the interstitial space between the West and China, you must have come across a lot of big Western misconceptions about how law works in China. The first one is probably the most fundamental one. So does law really matter in China? Yes, it matters about 90% of the time is what I always say. If you're going to make rubber duckies in China and you want to protect your technology in rubber duckies and you want your Chinese factory to supply you with good quality rubber duckies on time and you have a good contract and your Chinese factory violates that contract and you sue them for being late, poor quality or stealing your IP, you'll win. And that's the typical China contract. Now, take the same contract and pretend that instead of rubber duckies, you're making cutting edge semiconductors. Well, that's the 10%. And in that situation, all bets are off. But most situations are closer to the rubber ducky situation than the cutting edge semiconductor situation. So what constituted that 10% change over your time working in this practice? That's a tough question because probably 15 years ago, I would have put that percentage a lot higher, but for very different reasons. I would have put it a lot higher because the Chinese courts were not very competent 
and because they were also more likely to rule in favor of a Chinese company. So it has changed over time. If anything, it's gotten better over time in terms of the percentages. But in terms of what comes within each block of percentages, I don't think it's changed all that much. There are always going to be the things that the Chinese government is very concerned about. Those things get politicized. Those things are treated differently in the courts than a basic run-of-the-mill breach of contract lawsuit. Stepping back here a minute, what people need to realize is that China's court system is not independent. It's basically part of the Communist Party. And overall, generally, the rule for these courts is rule fairly. So a basic dispute, they're generally going to rule the right way, fairly. But if it's something that's really important to China, that takes precedence over fairness. And cutting-edge semiconductors, that's really important to China. Rubber duckies, less so. So the sense of fairness for that 90% has increased over time. Maybe dig a little deeper into how that actually manifests and what do you see has changed when you uh, spoke about you know, the quality of the judicial system? Well, there are judges in places like Shanghai and Beijing who are incredibly well-educated and incredibly smart. 15 years ago, that was less true because the legal system was newer. And that was certainly not true in third-tier cities, and it was generally not true in second-tier cities. But China's court system overall has gotten quite good. They have specialized courts for intellectual property. They have specialized maritime courts. And these are judges who know what they are doing. China's legal system is not very much like that in the United States, but that doesn't mean it's any better or worse. It just means it's different. And you will hear a lot of American companies complain about having been hometown in a Chinese litigation matter. And experienced Chinese lawyers would look at that matter and say, no, the result would have been the same if you were a Chinese company. It's just that the Chinese courts rule differently than American courts. In the United States, the courts tend to look very, very much at the law, and they don't take special situations into account. In China, they're much more focused on fairness than the law. And so American companies oftentimes think they're going to win simply because the law is on their side, whereas in China, they will balance the equities. Could you give an example of that, of a, you know, a situation that would have been ruled one way in the US, but another in China? Absolutely. So we had a case many years ago where we were representing an American company that sold a huge amount of fish to a British company. And the British company came to them, the fish never arrived in China. The British company sued the American company. The American company hired us. We convinced the British company that the fish didn't arrive in China through no fault of our client, but the fault of a Russian company that actually never delivered the fish. And what we did is we convinced the British company to 
sue the company in China that said that the fish had arrived when it hadn't and caused the British company to wire millions and millions of dollars to the Russian company that then ran away with it. So we sued the Chinese company. And under the law in the United States, we would have won almost no doubt because the Chinese company said the product was there. They knew it wasn't. They knew the British company would pay based on that representation, and they did. But we told our clients this is a very tough case in China because the Chinese courts are very reluctant to penalize a company that employs a lot of people for the bad act of one of its lower level employees who probably got paid $500 to say that the product had arrived when it hadn't. So we go to the court and we had excellent lawyers um, in Qingdao who we've worked with for a long, long time. And the court kept telling us, you need to settle, you need to settle. Telling both parties that. And we wanted to settle because we knew we had issues, equitable issues. The case, nobody would settle on the other side. The case went to trial and we lost. We appealed and we lost. Again, we would have won in the United States. We lost in China because the Chinese courts did not think it fair to penalize a Chinese company for the act of a low-level employee. Now, what's so interesting about this case is I kept referring to the defendant as a Chinese company, and it was, but it was a Chinese company 100% owned by an Indian company. And China doesn't <laughs> exactly get along with India. So to me, that's even more of an indication, not that we were hometown, because I don't think we were, but that China's courts rule differently. In this case, they ruled based on what they saw as the equities. They did not want to put a company out of business that employed a lot of people. Fascinating. Do you want to, do you want to tell another example? Because I mean, this is a this is an interesting uh, vein. So another example is an American company came to us because they had sold a piece of equipment to China, to a Chinese factory, very expensive equipment, let's say $10 million. And the Chinese company had asked, and, and as part of that sale, typically the American company would require that the buyer use the American company to set up the equipment. The Chinese company said, we don't need you to do it. How much would you discount this sale if we did it ourselves? And that'll save us money and save you money. So the American company said, fine, we'll discount it 350000 And we tell, we always tell our clients, never, ever do that kind of deal. And this case is the reason why. The Chinese company set up the equipment and did a terrible job. And the equipment didn't work. 
And so the Chinese company did not want to make the final $2 million payment to the American company because the equipment didn't work. Well, the reason the equipment didn't work was because it wasn't set up properly. The American company wanted to sue the Chinese company. We told them that we did not like their case very much and that if they hired us, we would try to settle it. They did not like the answer we gave them, and so they hired another firm, they sued, and they lost. The reason why we did not like the case is because there's a view in China, under equity essentially, that a company that's selling a $10 million piece of equipment should be looking out for the buyer, and the buyer should get that equipment working in a working condition. And so the fact that there was a discount, yeah, that gave the American company some shot, but we still felt that they were going to lose because in the end, this little Chinese company that didn't know the equipment very well, they should have gotten equipment that worked. Even though they didn't pay the full 10 million, they still paid 8 million and that's a lot of money and they didn't get sure. it. And that's what happened. They lost. And I'm convinced to this day that if they had hired us, we would not have gotten them the $2 million, but we would have gotten them something. Interesting. So, Dan, what role does Guanxi really play in these sorts of questions in China? Very little. It doesn't play much of a role in the courts. Um, and it doesn't play any role, near as I can tell, in what I call our day-to-day -day China work. Much of what we do is things like forming companies in China, registering trademarks in China, registering design patents, registering copyrights, licensing agreements, etc. We have probably done 5,000 registrations in China and not once, not one single time has anybody even hinted at needing to get paid anything for them to do their jobs correctly. And believe it or not, there has never been a single time where I have believed that we have not gotten a registration based on corruption. And I'm not naive. I've done work in other countries. And I've done work in countries where something like registering a trademark, they will say, do you want it expedited? And I'll say, no, we're in no great rush. And then they'll make very clear that if we don't pay to get it expedited, it could take five, six, seven years. You don't get that in China. Now, I'm not saying there's not corruption in China. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that Guanxi is overrated and oftentimes used as an excuse by foreign companies for having done the wrong thing in China and then failed. There, there's another part to this story that you write on your blog when talking about how some foreign companies actually kind of really are excited about Guanxi and, and think it's like super cool to bribe folks. Um, how does that dynamic end up playing out generally? Well, those companies we tend to not want as our clients. They tend to be very bad news. 
a story I once I, I, I speak a lot about China and I once told this story. It was actually in Philadelphia. I remember it well because I said I would never tell it again. But because I'm not in front of a live audience, I'm gonna tell it again. And the story is that many, many years ago, we had a Russian paralegal whose father was the vice governor in a Russian province. And we hired her based on her abilities. And only after we hired her did we realize what a great hire it was because all of a sudden we started getting a whole host of Russian companies from this province using us for their international legal matters. And everything was great for two or three years. And then one day, this paralegal's father came home and was murdered with an ax. Now you understand why it didn't oh, go over very well as an example of why Guanxi can be so fleeting. But the, the moral of the story or the conclusion to the story is that our international practice for Russian companies from that province died with the death of the vice governor. And we see that a lot with China, or less now than we used to. But we, we once had a matter where our client went into business with a Chinese company based on the fact that allegedly the owner of the Chinese company was an ex-general. We don't even know if that was true. But what I remember about that case, that matter, is that one of our lawyers told the client, look, instead of investing $2 million in this company, you and I should go to Las Vegas, and we should put that $2 million on red on the roulette wheel because <laughs> your chances of getting your money back will be so much greater if we do that than if you invest and we'll have a lot more fun in the meantime. The client chose not to go to Vegas, invested the $2 million, lost it all, and then contacted us and asked whether we would take the lawsuit on a contingency basis. And in the firm, we would joke that we would not have taken that case on a 300% contingency. That's how bad it was. <laughs> now, I've changed some of the facts here a little bit so that this case cannot be recognized by anybody, but you get the picture. And it was somebody sure. who just thought it was the greatest thing that he was going to be doing business with an ex-general. And where we also see it is where we tell people, look, it takes three to five months to form a woofy. And we're constantly talking with other law firms, Chinese law firms, American law firms, European law firms, and they're constantly telling us, yeah, that's about how long it usually takes us too. But then there'll always be the people who will say with a wink, we can get that done for you in a month. And they either can't, they're just making it up, or they do it by cutting corners 
And then a year later, the woofy might get shut down because all these corners were cut. And there'll be people who will treat us as naive for not being willing to employ tactics to cut the line. But I don't believe you can cut the line. I think you just cut down on the care that you put into waiting in line. Could you talk about negotiating with Chinese counterparts and to what extent there would be differences as opposed to dealing with Western counterparts? Yes. And I will try to sum it up in less than three hours. (laughs) The differences are huge. I mentioned Steve Dickinson taught Chinese law at the University of Washington Law School. He also taught an international negotiation course And he always claims, I don't know if he's deliberately exaggerating or not, but he always claims that he would universally flunk the Chinese students because what they would do is they would come in and say, we want $20 million and that's it. They wouldn't compromise. They wouldn't explain where they came up with the 20 million and they wouldn't budge. So there'd never be a settlement. A lot of Chinese negotiations are like that especially if it's reached the point of a dispute where you're looking at litigation. They tend not to be willing to settle. Now, when you're negotiating a contract where they really want to reach agreement, it's different, but sometimes it's the same. And and they'll do, there are all sorts of different tricks they employ, some of which are pretty standard tricks even in the Western world, but they will employ many of them and they're very tough negotiators. And a lot of times we have to fight with our clients to convince them not to just go along with it. Like the siren song of Chinese legal negotiating. Yes. I mean, they, 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 they know Americans lack patience. They're prepared to take advantage of it. And Oftentimes, once negotiations have gone on for a certain amount of time, they will all of a sudden throw out some deadline saying, hey, we, you know, we need to get this done by March 5th because they'll give some explanation that involves the government. That's a pretty standard tactic. One of my favorite stories is we were negotiating a licensing deal with a very big company in China. And this Chinese company told our client that our client would need to assign ownership of the intellectual property rather than just giving them a license to use it. And they told our client that that was because Chinese law required that. And we told our client, Chinese law doesn't require that. Go back and ask them to show you where in Chinese law that's required. (laughs) And they went back to the Chinese company and the Chinese company said, well, you don't read Chinese, so there's no point in our showing you that. And they said, yes, but our lawyers can read Chinese. Send it to us and we'll show it to them. And then their response to that was, well, it's not written down anywhere. There was no Oh, law. of course. We eventually did the deal the way it was supposed to be done to favor our client, the way it would normally be done in virtually every country in the world. So what are these other sorts of siren songs that Chinese companies try to get Western ones to agree to? Well, one thing they'll do is 
which we're seeing a lot of, they'll go to an American company and they'll say, we love your company or we love your, te- let's say we, lo- we love your company. We want to invest 40 million in your, in your company. And then the American company calls us and says, we've got this Chinese company that wants to invest 40 million into our company and then do a joint venture with us in China. Isn't this great? And we go, no, this is terrible. I'm exaggerating here. but <laughs> uh, And they'll say, why is that terrible? And we'll go, because they're never going to invest 40 million in your company. And all they really want is to steal your technology. They'll say, well, but we would never give them our technology unless they invested the 40 million. And we're like, okay. Well, what then happens is gradually as we're negotiating, that 40 million becomes 20 million. That 20 million is going to get paid over five years, not right away. And to get that 20 million, now that we're in business together and we're friends, American company, you need to enter into this joint venture with us in China and give that joint venture the technology. And we tell our clients, look, once that technology goes over there, you're not even going to get your 20 million over time. And a lot of times these companies are desperate and they do the deal anyway. One of the things I've learned is there are a lot of companies in Silicon Valley, in Seattle, in Austin that are one funding round away from bankruptcy. And some of these companies Mm. you've heard of, and they might be the number two, three, four, or five company in their space. And that can be the equivalent of being the number 500 company. Nobody cares. And so they need money. Chinese companies know exactly which companies these are, and they go for them. And they'll try and strike these technology deals. And American companies tend to fall for it. An example I always give is, and this is based on a number of different incidents we've seen, Chinese company comes to an American company and says, we'll give you $10 million for your technology to be able to use it for the next 10 years. American company says, that's great. By the time we're writing the contract, it's 10 million over time, 1 million right away, and then 1 million, let's say every six months. Well, we tell our American client, look, here's their plan. Their plan is to pay you as little as possible and get as much as possible. And then at some point, they're just going to stop paying you. And then they're going to take what you've given them and develop it further. There's this natural tendency among companies to believe they're unique and that their product is more complicated than it really is. And so We'll tell our client, look, what we typically see is at about stage four, they stop paying. And then they are able to use their own people and get your product up to stage seven. And then our client will say, well, at stage four, there's no way they've got any capability to get it to stage seven. And even if they got it. I mean, stage four, like they've understood, like they've got sent 40% of it. Yes, four out of 10. And then they'll say, and even if they could get it to stage seven, no one's going to buy it because everybody wants to be at stage 10. And we say, no, you're underestimating them. They can take it from four to seven, and then they'll sell it around the world, not to the United States, not to Germany, but to India, to Pakistan, 
maybe to Brazil, etc. And they'll say, no, 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 that can't happen. And then they do the deal. And what's amazing is the Chinese company stops at stage four, but in reality, they stop even before that. What will happen is they're supposed to pay the first million before they get anything. And then they'll say, oh, we're having trouble getting this million out. You're really hurting us. You need to give us some of this technology. Why are you treating us so badly? And before we know it, our client will have given stages one, two, three, and four. And they don't even tell us because they know we'll just chew them out and tell them not to do it. (laughs) They're given up stages one through four, and all they'll have gotten is $1 million and a bunch of promises. And then it's all cut off. That's a fascinating window into the mental biases on the American side. Yes. American companies can be ground down. So I'm curious how you've seen the trade war and broader economic turndown over the past couple months in China play out from the view of your practice. Well, that's an interesting question. And it's, in a sense, almost three questions. It's a trade war question. It's an economics question. And it's what's happened with your practice question. And... Seeing as how I was one class short of an economics major as an undergrad, I don't feel qualified to talk about economics. And I'm also not a trade expert. But what I can talk about is what I have seen happen with our clients in light of this trade war. And what it is, is I would describe it as the last straw. A lot of our clients are saying, you know what? I should have left China years ago. I was lazy. That's not going to happen to me again. I don't care what happens with this trade war. I'm done. And we have a lot of clients that are making preparations to leave China and they're going to leave China no matter what. And I just said I'm not an economist, but I did predict that China's economy would take a major downturn by February, and I think it's going to keep getting worse. And it's not that I'm some genius economist, it's that I could hear what almost all of our clients were doing, which is they were buying massive quantities of Chinese product before the tariffs came down and before Christmas with plans to not buy nearly as much come February. And a lot of them have plans to get out of China, get their manufacturing out of China. What people don't realize is that does not happen instantly. So for example, Mm. um, we have a client, I was introduced to a client of ours. My excuse is it was very late in the day, a very long day. And this client is a big company that makes what I would call a mid-level type product, not a rubber ducky, not super complicated electronics either. The kind of product that could be made in China, could probably could be made in Vietnam, could be made in Thailand, but a fairly substantial product. And they were meeting with one of our trade lawyers and he introduced me to this client and I started talking to them and I learned that they're doing 50% of their production in China, 50% in Vietnam. And I started saying, how's it going 
Poor You in Vietnam, where they'd been for like two years. And they talked about how great it was. And they preferred it. They listed all these reasons. Um, and it was cheaper. So this is my, my excuse. I gave the excuse for what was, in hindsight, a pretty dumb question. I said, well, then why don't you move all your manufacturing to your Vietnam facility? And their answer was, we can't just move all of it because that facility is not big enough and we don't have enough people. But we are slowly growing it as part of a five-year plan to get entirely out of China. Mm. We're hearing a lot of companies with two-year plans, three-year plans, five-year plans to get entirely out of China. They do not view China as reliable. They do not view the U.S.-China relationship as reliable. That's our American clients. We, we, do, we have an office in Spain. We represent a lot of Spanish companies. They're probably one step behind the American companies. But man, you should listen to our Canadian clients. They are <laughs> scared. They are scared to go to China. They are scared of having business in China. And they are moving as fast as they can to get out. If China wanted to scare Canada and scare countries like Canada, they've done a great job by seizing two Canadian citizens for apparently no reason and deciding to retry and sentence to execution a drug dealer, an alleged drug dealer, I should say. So how are the Chinese factories responding to this pressure from their international counterparts? They are freaking out. They are scared. They are desperate. They are doing things that we haven't seen before. One example is if you had a product and you went to a good Chinese factory and said, I'd like you to make this product for me. Let's work together, figure out how to make it. Your intellectual property was probably safe during that period, meaning that these factories typically steal IP years down the road after the American company maybe has less product made or moves to a different factory or whatever. But usually the Chinese company would think, I can make millions over the next five years just making this widget for the American company. I'm not going to jump in and steal it right now. Now they're jumping in and stealing it right now. So we're having American companies come to us and say, look, I met with this Chinese company. I asked them to make my widget. I come back to the U.S. and it's now on the Internet. And what can we do? I go, well, I don't know. Do you have a contract? No. Well, I don't think there's all that much you can do. Yeah. So we're seeing that. What we have seen in every China economic downturn, which is Chinese companies waiting for a big order and then shipping really low quality products or short shipping or not shipping at all. We're seeing, and, and this is, I hate this when it happens, where we get a call from someone and they'll say, I've been doing business with this Chinese company for 20 years. We had a great relationship. I sent them a million dollars. I can't even reach them. What's going on? We do a little research and we say, hey, they're not there anymore. 
Sorry. Mm. And the reason I hate that is because there's a lot of times when American companies have problems in China. In fact, probably 90 plus percent of the time, I, as a lawyer, can take comfort from the fact that had they done things right, had they actually hired a good lawyer, they wouldn't be having those problems. That makes me feel better. But when somebody's been doing business for 20 years, you cannot rationally say, well, you need to um, do due diligence on that company every week. That's not how business operates. So I, I feel terrible in those situations because I can't blame anybody. Yeah, it's it's a, just a product of the 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 situation that that's going on on the Chinese side nowadays. Right, right. And what we're also seeing, though, that's interesting is well, interesting because this is very new. We're having Chinese companies co- go to our clients and say, you know, these these electronics that we're making for you in China, we've moved our production to Vietnam, or we've moved our production to Thailand, and now we can make the same thing, and it'll say made in Vietnam on it. And they haven't really moved their production. They've moved maybe one one hundredth of their production, and it can say made in Vietnam on it, but if it comes into the United States, the customs officials are not idiots. They're going to say, this wasn't made in Vietnam, and you're claiming that it was, and that's illegal, and people go to jail for that. This has a way to get around the tariffs. Exactly. But it doesn't work. And so what you need to do is, and you asked, you know, what's going on with our firm, we've never been busier. There's an old saying about lawyers, lawyers do well when times are good, lawyers do well when times are bad. Lawyers don't do well when nothing changes. There have been big changes. Mm -hmm. So our trade lawyers, I I jokingly say that they've all of a sudden become sexy. I mean, trade law was never sexy till now. And what they have to do is, let's say a client wants to make their electronics in Vietnam. Well, Vietnam doesn't have the chips, doesn't have, you know, this and that. How much has to be made in Vietnam for the electronic widget to be dubbed legally as having been made in Vietnam? And I didn't even know there was this area of law, and it's a lot more complicated than I thought because it involves all sorts of things like the value of the component parts, how complicated the production process is in each country all sorts of factors that go into determining where a product is made for U.S. tariff purposes. And so uh, they're keeping busy trying to help our clients have their products made elsewhere, and yet still they need to get certain parts from China. So earlier in 2018, you had a China scam week, which seems to be a recurring theme on this blog and has also come up a few times in the course of this conversation. I'm curious which uh, legal scams you find most impressive, and particularly the ones that can snatch uh, the big Fortune 100 type firms. Okay. First off, let me say that international scams are in no way peculiar to China. International scams 
are some of the oldest in the book. And I actually had lunch today with a Korean-American lawyer friend of mine, and we were reminiscing about a case that we had worked on together probably 15 years ago where we were representing a Korean company that came over to the U.S. and got scammed. So cross-border scamming has always been and will always be very popular because you can take advantage of the ignorance of the foreigner. When I talk about China scams, I'm not necessarily bad-mouthing China. I'm just talking about the reality that we see there. And we see a lot of them. The the one that we see a lot um, that is oftentimes dubbed the China scam really isn't. And that is the one where you've got an American company that gets an email saying, we changed our bank account, please send the money here. And the American company does that. And then three weeks later, the Chinese company says, why haven't you paid us? And the American company says, we did. And the Chinese company says, no, you didn't. Somebody got hacked. And most of the time that hacking goes on out of Nigeria. And a lot of companies have fallen for that one, including some very big companies. And in one of our blog posts, we talk about the things you can do to minimize your chances of falling for it. What always makes me mad is I always stress that a lot of smart companies have fallen for that scam. And I get comments and emails saying, oh, that's ridiculous. Only an idiot would fall for it. And I'm here to tell you that is not true. A lot of very smart people have fallen for that scam. But the one I've always found the most interesting are the ones that take advantage of the differences in laws. And so one of my favorites, I hate to use the word favorites because these can damage human beings' lives, but one that's become very common is the Chinese company doing a deal with an American tech person or small company. And the let's say that the American tech company will send 10 people over to China for two years. And let's say they would ordinarily charge $5 million for that. No, they're going to charge $1 million because... They're they're given 30% ownership in the Chinese company. The problem with that is foreigners are not allowed to have ownership of Chinese domestic companies. And so when they contact us after this is all done and they're trying to figure out what to do with their stock, that's when we tell them there's not much you can do because you don't own 30% of that company because that's not even possible. Mm. So that's, that's one of them. There's one on the flip side, which I've already described, where the Chinese company says, we're going to invest $40 million in your company, and then they don't. And sometimes what they'll do is they'll say, we're going to invest $40 million, and then they'll say, we need to do 
due diligence on your company. That's perfectly reasonable. I mean, if you're going to invest $40 million, you want to do your due diligence. But what they do is they come over and they do some due diligence, and then they say, look, we need to better understand your technology before we invest. And the Americans say, okay, here. And then they run away with it because the Americans did not get, they did not even get a contract that could really be enforced against a Chinese company in that situation. Now, I'm not saying that they should have shown them the technology even with that contract. What we advise our clients is, look, they, you know, they're coming to you because they know you have a good technology. You don't need to show it to them. Sure. Let's talk a little a bit about how IP has evolved over the past, you know, 15, 20 years. You know, there's there's this conception in the US that IP is not something that exists in China. And this has been a big flashpoint in the current trade disputes. What's your general take on the state of intellectual property protection for foreign companies okay. on the mainland? I don't have a general take. I've got to break it down a little bit. And it's important sure. to break it down a little bit because... IP is very broad. Let's start with trademarks, your brand name, your logo. China, for the last 10 years, has been pretty good at enforcing trademark IP. I know that surprises people, but it's true. Alibaba is pretty good at enforcing trademark IP. In fact, Trademark IP enforcement has gotten so good in China that, and I'm not exaggerating here, I cannot remember the last time someone called us to say that their product and their trademark was being used improperly on Alibaba. It's so easy to get a trademark infringement taken off of Alibaba that most Chinese don't even try it anymore. What they'll do is they'll copy your product and use a different brand name. Um, so trademarks are very effective in China, except for Americans. <laughs> and the reason I say that <laughs> is because Americans, US, Canada to a lesser extent, Australia, Great Britain, now obviously Australians and the British are not Americans. I'm not one of those Americans who thinks everywhere is the United States. I just misspoke. Those are all what are called common law countries. We get our legal system from Britain. And under a common law I trademark system, the first to use a trademark gets it. That means the name of my firm is Harris Bricken. We're the first to use it. If some other law firm opened up in Washington, Oregon, or California, where we have offices, and they called themselves Harris Bricken, we could sue them and we would win, even though we have never registered our trademark, because we were the first to use it. China, the EU, most of Latin America, Japan, Korea, most of the world is a first to file jurisdiction. One is not necessarily better than the other. American companies that get burned on trademarks in China act like China's system is crazy. It's not. It's the majority. But what it means is that if 
you do not have a well-known brand, and I'll explain what that is in a minute. The first to file for your brand name in China gets it. So for instance, I'm looking at my desk and I have a pair of glasses and I won't mention the brand name, but it's a pretty well-known brand name in the United States. I have no idea whether they sell in China at all. My guess is it would not qualify as a well-known brand in China. And therefore, a Chinese glasses company could register that brand name in China. And if they are the, could apply for that brand name in China as a trademark, and if they're the first to do so, they would legally get it. And Americans have a lot of trouble grasping that. We always tell them, register your brand name as a China trademark. The first, make that the first thing you do before you even go over there. And it's just not how Americans think. Europeans think that way, so that's why they tend not to have the same problems. But trademarks work in China. The other thing I've got to come back to is the 90%. If someone steals your patented rubber ducky design, if you've got the patent in China, or if they breach the contract and steal your design and you sue, you will probably win. That's where the 90-10 rule really comes into play. Because if it's something that is really important for China, militarily, economically, technologically, your chances are a lot worse. But there are plenty of sophisticated IP lawyers in China, plenty of sophisticated IP judges in China. The laws are fine. Um, enforcement's getting better. It really just depends what you're dealing with. Let's talk quickly about JVs and this being something that some folks have taken as a way to kind of getting around a lot of these problems of operating in China. So what are the major pitfalls that foreign companies end up falling into when they try to start up a joint venture partnership? Well, I hate to use the same joke twice, but I'll try to confine my answer to less than three hours. And it's actually the topic of our blog post today, the major mistake companies make when entering into joint ventures in China. One of the first mistakes they make is believing that doing a joint venture will somehow protect their IP more than if they don't do a joint venture. Now, there might be some cases where it's equal, but generally you're putting your IP at greater risk. Now, what President Trump has been saying is China forces you to do a uh, joint venture and then the joint venture steals your IP. Neither of those things are really true because in most industries, you don't, you're not forced to do a joint venture. You, can, you do it by choice, meaning you're allowed to go into China on your own. And you're not forced to assign your intellectual property to the, to the JV. You can license it or not let the JV use it at all. But Americans do have, tend to have huge problems with joint ventures. And when we first started doing China, the problems were we get phone calls saying, look, I've been in this joint venture six or seven years, never made a penny. I'm ready to get out because I haven't even heard from my joint venture partner for three or four years. 
Then starting maybe five years ago, we'd get phone calls saying, I've been in this joint venture for eight years and I haven't heard anything for five years and I didn't really care anymore. I had just completely written it off. But now that joint venture is selling our product in the United States for half of what we charge. What can I do? And the answer always is, well, hire us. We'll look at your joint venture agreement and then we'll decide what you can do. Unfortunately, most of the time, the joint venture agreement is so badly written for the American company that there's nothing we can do. And unbelievably enough, probably 25% of the time to a third of the time, the American company used their Chinese joint venture partner's lawyer to draft the joint venture agreement. Mm. So it's not good for the American company. So mistake number one is not using your own lawyer who knows what she or he is doing. Mistake number two is assuming China is just like the United States and that if you have a 51% ownership in the joint venture, you control it. That's what I wrote about today. In China, the company that controls the joint venture is the company that gets to appoint the managing director and the company that gets to control the chops. You may own 60% of that joint venture, but you may not have any control over it. And people don't realize that. The other tough thing about joint ventures is it's so easy for your Chinese joint venture partner to do something that means the joint venture company never makes any money. So the example I always give is American company does a joint venture with a Chinese company and they're negotiating who's going to be in charge of what. The American company is doing most of the investment, so they're in charge of pretty much everything they think is important to be in charge of. Then the Chinese company says, well, do you want to be in charge of hiring a thousand factory workers in China? And the American company says, no, 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 no. I don't know who to hire in China. I don't know how to do that. You do that. Okay. So then they write that in the agreement. And then their Chinese joint venture partner hires 1,500 workers instead of 1,000. Why do they hire the extra 500? <laughs> well, those are relatives, friends, people who are kicking them back money, whatever. But now you've got a bloated payroll and there'll never be a profit. That's just one example. Dan, any parting words for wisdom out there for folks working in in China about how to stay safe? Yes. Um, I'm going to pull out an old, some a couple old bromides that I, I used to use in a talk that I gave many years ago. And that is, number one, do not assume China is anything like the United States. And... That's what our conversation has been about. And number two, do not assume China is any different from the United States. And the story I always tell to highlight that is we had a company that made a revolutionary product that took them three and a half years to get environmental protection agency approval because of the chemicals that they were putting into this product, years and years of testing. They build a factory in China. We do all the legal work for that. They say they're using a 
environmental company on the chemical issues. Fine by us. That's who they should be using. They build the factory. Everything's ready to go. And China says, you can't import these chemicals. And you can't use these chemicals on this product. And we turn to our clients and we go, what happened here? I mean, you were working with this environmental company. You, you and they were in charge. Why didn't anyone go to the Chinese government to get this clear? And their answer was, we just assumed that because it had U.S. EPA approval, that it didn't need China EPA approval. I did not say to this client, would you have assumed that because it had China EPA approval, it wouldn't need U.S. EPA approval? But that's essentially what they assumed. Now, fortunately, China can move quickly. China does not tend to make people's lives miserable for the sheer joy of doing so. If you want that, you have to go to Russia. And they were willing to accept many of the U.S. EPA tests. I don't think the U.S. EPA would be so kind. Sure. And so our client got approval in about 10 months, which was pretty good. And they thought it was pretty good, all things being considered. But it, it's this attitude that China's so different that they don't even think about how China does have laws and China very much cares about its laws, especially certain laws. Dan, this was a pleasure. Thanks so much for being a part of China Econ Talk. It was my pleasure. Thank you. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SUP China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shut the